you know, something that's important to realize about other people and about yourself is that you're trying to find something new. You're trying to break a piece of news, basically. And you want to get a little bit of credit for that. You know, and it's true for every interest that people have, every hobby, everything that people do. They want to be the first one to do something and they want to get acknowledged for that. To the point where people will lie about things. Like people will pretend that they found something they didn't just so they can get the feedback. Just so they can get a taste, an inauthentic taste for how it feels to get credit. But it's true for music, it's true for research, it's true for everything. You know, I was listening to this podcast a few years ago. It was a scientist who, you know, did some kind of research and some some sort of unique research. And he claims it was stolen by these other scientists, which probably was. Probably was. But it's something that, like he spent his whole life. <laughs> he spent his whole life upset about it because this was something of great importance to him. And he felt like he broke something, like he broke the news. He, he discovered something. He, he found undiscovered land. And someone else took it from him. And you see it with music, where it's like when someone writes a song, like they want to write an original song. Most, not, I don't know about most people, I think a lot of people who make music just don't care. They just want the feedback once again. But there's a lot of people who, when they write a song, it's like they want it to be original. But they want it to be original in a way that's also somehow familiar. And what that is, is they want it to be original, but they want it to be logical. Because you can be, a, if you throw logic out the window, and I don't mean intellectual logic, I just mean something that makes sense. And that could be a feeling too, more than a thought. But when someone creates something or discovers something, it's like they want there to be some logic to it. Like if you write a song and it's unique, you also want it to feel logical to people. You want people to appreciate it. It's kind of, you know, if you're writing a metal riff, like everybody knows what metal is. You know, even though there's all these different forms of it, when you write a metal riff, it could be in a very specific genre, but when you write a riff, you want to feel like that's your riff, and there's not only something unique about it, there's something uh, forward-moving about it. Like this, this is not just original, but it also does something. It accomplishes something. And it could be within a genre, but being able to create something original while also making it recognizable within a, a genre, that's what I mean by logic. Write a death metal riff. Death metal riff. And it, it could be highly original. Nobody's written that riff before. People want to listen to that riff over and over again. And even though nobody's ever done it before, it falls within a recognizable logic. 
And with research that plays out with, you know, intellectual logic. Like if you discover a piece of information that nobody's ever discovered before, it's not just the discovery of the information that makes it significant. It's that there's a logic to how that information is processed or understood, how it's contextualized. You know, like I, I research the mafia. I'm deep into it. I write very long, too long. It's just the length I want, but they're too long. And they go all over the place. They're tangential, tangential and too long. But when I do that, you know, I always want it to, to break some sort of new ground. Like just about every article I've written for my blog is about something that nobody else has covered. Or at least covered in that way. Like one of them was I, I found out that this longtime U.S. congressman, Vito Marcantonio, was actually identified as a made member of the mafia by a very trusted source. And I found a bunch of other information where he was linked to prominent mafia figures. And this is something that has not been covered. Like there are references here and there to him being friends with mobsters, basically. But the idea that Vito Marcantonio, who was a socialist, a longtime U.S. congressman, he's a very famous figure in far left circles, member of the Communist Party, but that he was very likely a made member, a fully inducted member of the New York Mafia. You know, that had never been written about. And when I wrote that, when I, when I write any of my articles, I go to great lengths to try to find out if, has anybody else covered this? Has anybody else referenced this? And that's really one of the criteria for me as far as wanting to write it. Not simply the fact that I get to claim that I was the one who broke it. Like, it's my passion that led me to even find that out and want to write about it. But one of the reasons I even bother with doing it is because nobody else has done it. And it feels good. Like, there's the ego is satisfied by that. And there's nothing wrong with that. It gets completely out of control. But there's nothing wrong with feeling a sense of pride because you were the first one to write about something or, re or find something, discover something. And, uh, but within that, it's not just like the discovery of new information. Like that discovery has to make sense. It has to be put in context. There has to be a logic to it. It has to fit in with something. That's basically what logic is to me in a general sense. It's, it's when things fit together. When I talk about music, like you write a metal riff and you're trying to create something original, but it has to fit together. It has to fit in. Yeah, some people are truly iconoclastic and they, cre they can create something brand new, but most of us don't. Like, I've never done anything that's brand new. I've never done anything that's brand new. Like any kind of, cre as a creative person, like, you know, I'd say like everything I've ever drawn, maybe not everything, but a lot of what I've drawn, a lot of the music I've made, I don't think it's derivative at all. You know, I'm, I'm just speaking as honestly as I can. Like I, I have a million criticisms of my own work, 
but one thing I can confidently say it's not is derivative. It's in the style of other things because I haven't created something new. But within the framework of, of something that's already been created, it's not derivative. There is something unique about it. That's, and that's all I want. You know, away from good and bad, whether someone appreciates, likes something or not, like all I actually want from anything I do is for it to basically be competent and not derivative. But to also like fit in with that, you know, to, to, to lock together, to fit together with something else as well, like for there to be a logic to it. And with research, it's that way as well. With anything that human beings do, it works that way. Like I said, there's a, a infinitely small number of people who can do something truly iconoclastic. But it's so rare, and even most things that seem iconoclastic are actually building off something else. It's Buddhist cosmology, you know, the origin of everything is dependent. And the idea of dependent origin is that, like, if something is moving, there's always something else that's causing it to move. Every motion is put forth by the motion of something else. All momentum comes from the momentum of something else. So you can never actually get to the bottom of it. If the momentum of everything is caused by the momentum of something else, you can never actually get to the bottom of like, where's the momentum coming from if everything is being propelled by something else? And so iconoclasm is that way, you know, when something is completely novel and new and unique. Personally, I believe that there are things that can just be that. But most things that seem that way, if you were to really look at them, are building on something else. There's still a logic, like they're still building on an existing logic. Um, but anyway, getting to the idea of um, you know, doing something new, you know, what crushes someone's ego is if they think they're doing something new or found something new and they find out they're not. And what got me thinking about this is a friend of mine has been working on a project for about 10 years, research and writing. And he's finally like putting it together and I'm, I'm collaborating, you know, a bit, uh, you know, providing feedback, also just contributing in other small ways. But because my friend's been working on this so long, like some of the things that he was planning to scoop, scoop, have actually come out by other people since then. And like one of the things that he was, that was very important to him in, in his research and the writing he wanted to do something came out about it like a year ago, a year and a half ago. Like someone wrote uh, an article, a series of articles that actually covered this. And while my friend is going to offer a better analysis of it and he's going to be able to contextualize it better, someone else still scooped it. It's something, you know, 
mafia history. And my friend's response, and you know, I'm not attacking him, I'm just, this is just the truth. But my friend's response was to ignore it. And now he still hasn't read it. And me and another friend have, have been telling him, like, you got to read that. Like, if you're, if you're going to publish this, you have to read what the other guy said because he, he, it sucks. Like, you were researching this a long time ago. And at that point, nobody else had mentioned it anywhere. But he beat you to the punch. And if, and I fully believe this friend of mine is capable of providing better analysis and context, like I was saying. But like, in order to do that, he has to know what this other guy said. And I can tell you that, you know, if the roles were reversed, I would have just put my face right. And my, and my friend admitted, you know, he admitted like he hasn't read it yet because it depressed him. Hey, don't bite me. Don't bite me. Um, my friend admitted that he hasn't read it yet because it depressed him that somebody else got to it first. And it's like, well, that's even more reason to read it. And if the roles were reversed and it was me, like if I was working on something like, you know, I published an article on my blog some time ago about the mafia in Birmingham, Alabama. It's a place where nobody had ever heard of a, a formal mafia family ever having existed. And someone made a reference to it, but provided almost no detail. Uh, the son of a major historic New York mafia boss, and the son was himself a long, you know, a longtime member of the mafia who left the life but he wrote a book right before he died where he mentioned he's he's kind of going over mafia history and he's like and there was also a family in Birmingham, Alabama that disbanded in the 1930s and he provided almost no information on it but it led me and some other people to dig in and go hey you know let's look into this and it while there's certainly not enough information not as not as much information as i would like by any means I found a significant amount of evidence that points to that, that supports that. You know, a lot of it's general. And in my article about it, I, I went off on a million tangents unrelated to Alabama. I kind of made it this big journey of tangents, too long and tangential. Um, but, uh, you know, still, like I found supporting evidence. And aside from that reference in that book, a brief reference, which I cite, you know, in, in my article, I say, like, this was, I was inspired to dig into the Birmingham Mafia family because Bill Bonanno in his final book says there was one. So I'm going to examine what I can find. But outside of that, nobody had ever referenced it. And when I was working on that, if somebody else had scooped me, as they call it, like if somebody else had published an article about the Mafia in Birmingham, I would have been like, fuck. Like, my ego would have been wounded, absolutely. I would have felt threatened. But I would have just stuck my face in it. I would have been like, I want to see what this other person actually said about it. Does it overlap with what I said? Is it going to maybe add to what I'm doing? Is it, are they just, are they saying the exact thing I was going to say? 
And even outside of those questions, like I just, I would have had to read it though. I, I have to read this. If I'm covering this subject, I have to read this. My ego might be wounded, but I have no choice. I have to read this. And I would have read it anyway as someone interested in this subject. Like even if I wasn't working on something related to that, I would have read it because I'm the audience for this. And in this case, like nobody else, like, like I'm literally the first person to ever publish an article or anything substantial about what may have existed in Birmingham. But I can tell you if that wasn't the case, I would have just stuck, you know, I would have immersed myself in it. Um, so that's the advice that a couple of us were giving my friend because, you know, we're, we've kind of been acting like consultants almost on this project, like talking through things, offering advice, contributing a little bit of our own research, that kind of thing. And we both read it. The two guys that you're, you know, using for feedback, like we've read this article that covers some of the same stuff you're writing. And we, we think you can do it better. You think you, we think you can add your own context. We think you can go different places with it, but you have to read it. You can't just hide from it. You can't be in denial. Because then you, 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 uh, hurt yourself because you're you run the risk of being intellectually dishonest you know and, and you don't exist in a vacuum and in the end it might strengthen what you're doing and if your ego is really worried about it you can say when you started the project like oh someone else published this in 2022 and you're publishing it in 2024, and we know these things take years. You can say I started this in 2014. You know, if, if your ego is really worried about the phantoms out there who are gonna be like, he did it first, he beat you. You know, if you're really worried about those phantoms, you can, you know, put on a little bit of armor maybe, and say like, this was researched and originally conceived and, 2014 even though it wasn't published until now you can you can backdate anything and use that as armor if you're worried about being original or something like that you can you can always backdate it and and people love to backdate things oh i thought this in 2012 you see this with uh, social political pundits like if you look at twitter you'll see a lot of this where it's like oh i was Look what I said a year ago. Oh, now everybody's saying that uh, Jabama bin Biden's old and senile. Look what I posted a year ago. Look what I posted two years ago. See where? See, I said it first. See, give me the credit. And that's the thing, though. You can never be concerned with credit. You know, you want to protect what's yours. I'm all about that. But you ne you can never do something. Like, if you do something, you can never do it purely just to get credit for it. You have to feel compelled. 
you know you, you you can never worry and and chances are like you're gonna it's gonna be better it's gonna be higher quality if you're not worried about getting credit for it but uh you know it's a it's a, a huge problem for our egos is that even if you do something original if you know deep down that it's something that somebody else could have easily done then you know somehow it's not that special whereas like if you do something and you know that it's something somebody else couldn't easily do the way you do you're not even worried about getting accolades Because you're like, this is mine. You still have an ego. Your ego's still invested in it, but you're just like, I know this is mine. I know this is mine. But if it's some, even if you're the first person to do something, if you know that it's very easy to do, if you know that somebody else could, you know, if you had just waited long enough, could have easily done the same thing, you know it's not that special deep down. It may have been necessary, but it's not special. But, uh, I don't know, that idea of intellectual dishonesty, I've spoken about it before, of course, spoken about everything before, and uh, it's like lying. I mean, it is lying. It's dishonesty. Intellect. It turns out intellectual dishonesty is dishonesty, which is a form of lying. And when you find somebody being dis intellectually dishonest, you know, it, it's a very embarrassing moment for everybody. Because when someone's dishonest to you, you know. When someone lies to you, you know. When someone's lying to themselves in front of you, you know. If you clear away all the brush, if you hack away all the brush, and you just try to live very purely, you try to see things very purely, it's very easy to spot lies. Like, there are some people who are so good at it that you don't know, but they're so rare. And most, peop most people that you're gonna interact with and meet aren't that good at it. There's just a very small percentage of people who are actually good at lying. And even then, they're not that good. So when most people you know or you see or you hear when they lie, you know. And I actually, the way I live, I, I live a life where I don't lie, but I, I assume everybody thinks I'm lying. Not because I say outlandish things, not because I boast of crazy things. Like, even just going like, oh, yeah, you know, my, my friend so-and-so did this. Oh, I have a friend who did so-and-so. I just, I just kind of assume the person listening to me, unless they know that friend, I'm just like, oh, he's lying. Oh, he's lying. It's, it's similar to the feeling of going to a store and leaving without buying anything. And you always have that feeling where you're like, they think I'm stealing. 
Oh, they think I'm stealing. It's kind of a similar feeling where it's like, they think I'm lying. I'm not lying, but they think I'm lying. Which I think is better, a better way of thinking for me, at least, than they think I'm telling the truth. They think I'm telling the truth. You know, I think, I don't know, I think you help yourself in some way if you just assume that everybody thinks you're lying. But when someone does lie to you, it's just like, I know. You know, and it's not all of that, like, textbook, like, oh, they're, they're not looking you in the eye. Because here's the thing about me is I don't lie. Of course, I lie a little bit. Like, I, the, I lie in the ways that you have to to get by in life. But I, I don't lie. I don't lie-lie. But I don't make much eye contact. I'm not a big eye contact guy. Like, I don't look down. I don't, like, stare at the ground. But when I'm talking to somebody, I kind of, like, look away. I'll make moments of eye contact because I'm not autistic. You know, I'll, I'll, like, I'll be, like, looking off in the distance or something. Or I'll be, like, looking around. And then I'll, like, you know, lock eyes with that person for a second. But I don't just sit there and stare looking someone in the eye. It's, it always feels weird to me. It feels too intimate. So I'll kind of like look off, you know, in different parts of the room. And that also helps me find my thoughts better. Like sometimes if, if I make eye contact with somebody for too long, I'm left speechless. So it's easier to look in the distance. But point being, I'm not a big eye contact guy. Not any more than is necessary, like bare minimum. But yet I don't lie. So there's like those textbook ideas like, oh, like, you know, someone's lying if their nostrils flare when they talk to you and they don't look you in the eye. And it's not even that. Like, I'm sure that's true to a large extent. But, you know, a lot of, a lot of it's just kind of like you just see like a microsecond. Like I interviewed this girl and I asked her, like, you know, did you leave your last job on good terms? And I saw this moment I wouldn't even call it hesitation. I just saw this this sort of subliminal discomfort. Almost like a nanosecond of a gasp. And uh, this person I was interviewing was like, oh, yeah, it was, yeah, it was fine. And I, I remember in that moment, I still hired her. But in that moment, I was like, she's lying. She didn't leave her last job on good terms. And uh, since then, I found out, yeah, she was fired. She was fired from that job. And I knew she was lying about that. But, you know, interviews are just, they're all, the interviews are one big lie. The person doing the interview is doing some lying. The person being interviewed is doing some lying. You know, interviews are just, it's, it's a, you're basically, you have to like prove you're good at lying. And that's normally the mindset people take. But I have to say like this last round of interviews, like I hadn't had a job interview for a while. And then these job interviews I went to last year before I got this job. I remember saying on here, like, it's the only time I've gone to job interviews and not been nervous.
my whole life, like I'm keyed up. And not to say I won't ever again, but I, the only time in my life, like I go into a job interview that I haven't been nervous. Like normally you're shaken, you're like, you're, you know, you, you have anxiety. I, the only anxiety I had before these job interviews was immediately beforehand and immediately after. But the beforehand, it was more just like, oh, I hope I get there on time and I hope um, I hope I use the right door or something. But anyway, uh, I really had very little anxiety. I had no anxiety in the interview. Like normally that's where it peaks, where you're just on the spot. You, you need or want this job, like you want to earn this position. You have to do a little lying, a little, a little, uh, tell a little sugar-coated lie because you want this job and it's not a harmful lie. It's just like, I, I need this job lie. But this last time I felt, I felt no nervousness or anxiety and I don't think I lied. No, I, I can think of something I lied about. It was inconsequential. I had to lie about one thing. But outside of that, I was completely honest. And I just sort of riffed and I enjoyed it. It was weird. Like normally you think like a job interview is stressful. And I remember kind of enjoying it. I was like, this is, this is a fun thing. Like this is a cool idea. Like you're invited into this place you've never been. They probably take you into a back room, a room the public doesn't see and they just talk to you. This is a stranger. And I have to sell myself to this person and they have to sell themselves to me. Like they have to sell the job to me in a way too. And you just go and you do this. And there was this one interview I had, I didn't take the job, but I was offered it. And the interview like went on for like two hours. Not because it was like some fancy job where they have like intensive interviews. The lady just kept talking to me. She was this middle-aged lady who runs a company and like she offered me the job, but she just talked to me for two hours. And they always say like in a job interview, if the interviewer talks more than you do, like if, if the interviewer spends more time telling you about the company than they do asking you questions and you talking, like it's a good sign. I think that's fairly true, but having done a lot of job interviews as the interviewer in the last year, if I'm not that into a candidate, like once I realize they're not a good candidate, like I end up telling them more. I end up talking a little bit more. So that's, that might not be you know 100% true, but I think as a rule it is. In my experience, it's it usually does mean you have a good shot if they start talking more, but Anyway, you know, it was just weird though, like not really, aside from like a couple small lies, what I would call just like paperwork lies, in terms of like what I actually discussed weren't lies at all. And, uh, you know, it felt kind of good. It was kind of fun. Like I don't, I wouldn't want to be some freak who just like, goes to job interviews for fun. Like that, that would be a good, I wonder if someone must have done that. Out of all the weird things people do, there must be someone who's like independently wealthy, will never need money again, who just applies to jobs and goes into the interviews just for something to do.
That, that must be something somebody's done. I've, I've heard of people just going to church for something to do. Go to job interviews for something to do. Like, it's like this gamble. Or it's like, I'm going to apply to jobs and see who brings me in. And I'm just going to go talk to them. But it is a fun exercise because it's improv. In theory, it's this high-pressure situation. And this, this person is bringing you in to, like, basically ask if you're worth it. You know, if you're, is it worth like paying this person so that they can live because we need them to do this thing so that we can live? That's what it, that's what a job interview is. Like in order to run this company, we need somebody to do this. And if we don't have people to do that, like we can't run this company and we can't live. And this person needs to find something to do to live. So we're going to see if they, this role works for them, <laughs> you know? So, and then we're going to have this weird game of improv where often the interviewer is just as nervous, just as unready. Like the first couple of job interviews I ever sat in on, I was a nervous wreck. One of them was at an old job where like I sat in, I don't know, maybe two or three interviews with my, it was like me and my boss and we interviewed somebody. So it wasn't even me, like, I, I was, I had an opinion. Like, the reason I was sitting in on the interviews was to, you know, ask questions and then, like, help decide. But it really wasn't my decision, ultimately, and I wasn't the boss. But I remember both me and my boss being incredibly nervous. Like, we had this one candidate at an old job who, he was this older guy, and he started asking us, like, these really technical questions and, and we were both just at a loss he was interviewing us and then even at this job like when I was new to this job like an, an entirely new industry like interviewing salespeople, like I don't know how to interview a, a, for a good salesperson so I was incredibly nervous but now you know I'm less nervous doing interviews but um there is still something kind of nerve wracking about it because it's like I, you know, especially if it's a position you really need. It's one thing if you're interviewing somebody and like it, it'd be a great addition, but it's not like a hole you have to fill, like an essential hole. That sucks. Like a debt, like they call that like a desperation hire. And I was in that position a lot last year and when somebody suddenly quits or you fire them and suddenly you have this hole, this need, like this hole in the schedule, somebody who can't do a certain thing, or you have nobody to do a certain thing, you're just like, fuck, I gotta fill this hole. And like, you know, so many people no-show, a lot of people, amazing, an amazing amount of number of people, like agree to come to an interview and just never show or call. A lot of them just suck. I mean, it's it's such a terrible feeling. Like, you interview somebody and you're like, oh, this person just sucks. This sucks. Um, but, uh, you know, and then sometimes you're, you're just so desperate to find someone who's halfway decent. I don't feel like I've... I've heard too many lies in, when I've been interviewing people 
And it's weird when you like see how nervous somebody is. Because I, I make interviews very casual. I don't go down like a list of questions. I just, it's just a conversation. If I don't have any kind of lead in, I'll just be like, well, what can you tell me? What can you tell me about yourself? Let's just talk. Let's just talk. That's kind of what I do though. I'll just be like, let's just talk. Because that's going to help give me a better feel for somebody than a lot of things. And I might throw in a, a pointed question here or there, like, how would you handle this situation? Are you this kind of person? I mean, a question, like when I, when I was hiring people for the old liquidation store that we closed last year, the question I asked every single person, I was like, you know, are you the kind of person where, you know, if you're walking by something and you see a mess on the ground, you know, do you, just, do you stop and you clean it up? And every single person said yes. Like, of course they're going to say yes. I know they're all going to say yes. And almost none of them did it, though. Like, once I hired them, the store was often messy. And unless I specifically told them, almost none of them ever were the type of person who stopped. So they all lied to me. But that was that was more... That wasn't so much a... Well, it, it, I did want them to do that. Like, I did want the employees to be the sort of people who stop and clean up a mess if they see it, because it takes two seconds. More than that, it was just a common sense question. You know, I'm not going to ask them, like, if you see a, a baby, do you stab it? You know, you can't ask that. It's a common sense question. Of course not. But cleaning up a mess, like, I felt like that was, you know, I wanted to ask that question because, one, it communicated a certain expectation, and it's something I did want people to do, clean up, clean up keep things organized. But it was also something that was just a common sense question. And an easy one. Like, it, it kind of, uh, what that is, is it's like a, I'm throwing you a layup here. And if you can show that you can can do something with that, like I'm literally I'm I'm literally throwing the the basketball like directly above the hoop. All you have to do is just gently glide it in. And if you can't do that, well then no, like you can't do anything. But you gotta at least do that. But uh, seeing people be nervous was always weird because. There were a couple of people I interviewed where I'm like, this person's really nervous. This person's really nervous to come and talk to me. I'm just a guy. Like, I'm, I'm just, I'm the manager. I, I'd be this person's boss, but it's like, I'm, I'm also just a guy. I'm just a random guy who ended up doing this. I'm making this real casual. And to see like these people just shaking, I'm just like, oh man, oh man, you're just shaking over there. Nerves are funny. You know, it's it's like a spell has been cast. I mean, I say that about a lot of things, but it's it's like a spell has been cast over this person, and I've been that person. 
I mean, I, I remember feeling that way. I had a job when I was in my early 20s, and I had to make just a ton of cold calls. That wasn't my job, but there was a two-week period where I had to make, like, I don't know how many cold calls. It was in the hundreds, for sure. It was like a two-week period, and I was told that, like, that's what I had to do all day. And again, it was just a two-week period. It wasn't the whole job. It wasn't what I had to do forever. But I, I was so nervous like I, I just the idea of having to make cold calls and ask for something and it wasn't money like I had to call all these facilities and ask if we could use them for meeting spaces and I had to like reserve a hundred of them so I was calling like churches pizzerias like I was calling pizzerias like they gave me this giant list of places to contact like any place that had a meeting room inside of it so I was calling, you know, like VFWs, churches, even restaurants, schools, and being like, can we use your meeting room? Can we, can we reserve your meeting room? And, I, and, you know, so it wasn't even like I was asking for money or anything, but I was still having to ask for something. And I just dreaded it. And when I was there, like, when I was there, supposed to, I would make, like, a call every, you know, 10 minutes. And then I would just, like, pretend to do something else. And nobody called me on it. I would just pretend to do, re like, I had to look in, they gave me a list, but I also had to look in phone books. And uh, I would just, what I ended up doing, like, for the first week... I ended up just like pretending to like look in the phone book and like look at maps and shit just so I didn't have to call and like no my boss never said anything but I knew it was something that had to get done and what I ended up doing is I ended up like calling out sick for two days straight and when I came back like these two like 40 year old guys who worked there had started making more calls for me and then I was like, well, I felt guilt. I was like, oh, because I called out sick. And I called out sick over that. Because I didn't want to do that. I was like, maybe if I just kind of hide for two days, it'll get done and I won't have to do it. When I came back and I saw that like, other people had to do it in my absence, and then I still had to keep doing it once I was back, I felt just very guilty. And what I realize now is like those those guys who were like in their 40s who were having to do it, like they didn't give a fuck. Like I worked with this guy, Bill, with one L. And he was like a 45-year-old artist. And I remember like listening to him make a call and he was like, hey, it's Bill. Hey, it's Bill. He didn't know these people. He's like, it's Bill. And he was just like, hey, I was... Yeah, I'm just seeing, a, you know, if we could use your meeting room for blah, 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 you know. And I was like, oh, he, he makes it sound fun. He's just calling people and he's acting like they're his old friend. And, and, he, and you could hear in his voice, like I, I could hear in his voice that he found it utterly ridiculous. But he, he's just a job. Oh, it's just a job. I just have to do this today. And so I ended up, you know... It, 
honestly seeing that like i, I didn't I still was like nervous and not comfortable doing it, but like seeing how that guy did it, I was just like, oh yeah, he makes it look easy. This isn't a big deal. But now I'm at a point where like none of that, like I work in a job in sales, you know, I manage a furniture store. So it's like all day I'm having to like go up to customers and be like, hey, how are you doing? Oh, hey, did you know that we have a, it's president's day. So uh, we're not charging tax and we're offering free delivery. And this section of the store, we have this. And see this price? Um, you know, I, I do that all day. And I'm, not, I'm actually not cheesy about it. I'm just nice. But that's something that even when I first started, like even a year ago, terrified me. And it's not even that I was actually scared of it. It's just I, there was this barrier. Where I was just like, I don't know how to do that. I don't like doing that. And you know, some, if I'm really tired or something, it can be hard. But you know, for the most part, though, like I go around all day doing that. Like I have to make phone calls. I have to answer phone calls. You know, I just I'm dealing with strangers, tons of strangers all the time, and I have to talk to them, and not just talk to them like I'm behind a desk. I have to I have to go out and talk to them. I have to greet them. But I don't. I like it. You know, it it doesn't bother me. You just. These are random people. And I think part of that is just getting older. Like, I'm also completely confident in who I am. And I'm also confident in the fact that this is a role. This isn't what I do normally. But I've, I've become that person, though, who, like, cashiers, same thing. You know, like, I'll banter with cashiers. Not, like, in-depth conversations, but I'll banter with them, and it's fun. You know, like like a month ago when uh, the cashier was like, I asked, I was trying to get thirty dollars cash back, and they were like, "Do you want it? Do you want two fives or a 10? And they and I was like, "Whatever's easiest." And they were like, "I'll give you two fives. And I was like, "Yeah, you know, tens are the new two dollar bill anyway." And the bag person, the trans bag person. Burst la burst out laughing, and I'm like, that was great. That was fun. That was fun. I should go back in there. You remember? You remember the other day? That was fun. Remember when I made that joke? That was fun. But I just kind of see things that way. Like, and if I had to do, I wouldn't want to have to do cold calls all day now. But opposed to when I was like 21, I don't know how old I was. 23, 24. You know, then it, it seemed just like I, I called out sick from work for two days straight. I lied so I didn't have to go in. Now, like, I would hate to have to do that all day, but I'd be on that phone. I'd be ripping through that phone. Just be like, hey, how you doing? This is Eric. This is Eric. How you doing? Oh, yeah, you know that meeting room you guys got? How about, uh, do you think we could reserve that for free? We want to use your meeting room. Hey. Hey, this is ridiculous, isn't it? Isn't that great? I mean, anytime someone just recognizes the absurdity, I enjoy it. 
and you know and it's not dishonest either because like some working in sales you know people naturally feel like there's going to be some dishonesty or they they naturally feel some pressure like the number one barrier that customers put up is like they come into the store and you're like hey how you doing and and before you can say anything they go just browsing just i'm just looking and just browsing and just looking is like they're essentially saying leave me alone and sometimes they buy something like there's a lot of people where like they they want to browse on their own and i prefer that like my favorite customer are the people who they're planning on buying something, but it's like they just want to be left alone to make their decision. If they have a question, they'll ask. But there's some people where they're just, they're rude. They're hostile. Because while we all understand that salespeople can be sharks and they can be pushy and they're trying to sell you something, they're trying to take your money, you know, there's another level of awareness where you understand that that's that person's job. And that, you know, it's just how it is. Like that's that person's job to assist you in buying furniture and they're going to talk to you. And we get feedback a lot like, hey, you know, what I liked about this place is you guys didn't follow us around and you weren't pushy. But, you know, we try to be helpful. We try to be around. Like I try to make, I, I walk around the store. If I don't have anything else to do, I walk around the store and I check in with people. I keep an eye on them. And part of it is just like learning how to read people. Like my approach to sales is unless they really want to be led around or they have questions, I just kind of let them look on their own and, and then I keep an eye on them and you can detect a moment where they're thinking. Like you'll see someone like with their wife, like standing next to a sectional and you'll see a moment where it looks like they have a question. And that's when you walk up and you're like, oh, hey, did you have a question? But you have to know how to read people. And so I take that approach where it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to read people. But there's a lot of people who just, they've been traumatized by the experience of salespeople. And, and you know, and to be fair, like, you know, there, there is like, if you're trying to sell things, it does really help to have somebody who's good at being aggressive without upsetting people with their aggression. Because there are certain sales techniques and, you know, it's, it's not a perfect science, but there are sales techniques where, you know, basically if someone's on the fence, you basically ask them to buy it. You go like, oh, so you want me to write this up for you? You want me to write this up for you? Like, basically, you, you put them in a position where they have to give you an answer. Like, if someone's kind of hemming and hawing, like, you use that to put them in a position where, like, they have to give you an answer. Because if left to their own devices, they're not going to, and they can't, and they don't come up with an answer on their own. Like, if they're debating in their head, but they're ambivalent, you know, chances are they're going to walk away because they can't make a decision. If they can't make a decision, well, the decision is no for now. But if you present them with the question, 
Oh, hey, do you want me to, to write that up for you? Oh, so you want this one? You now put them in a position where they actually have to make a decision. And sometimes it's no, and that's fine with me. I don't, I don't want anybody to buy anything they don't want to buy. You know, I might run a furniture store, but I don't want anybody to buy anything they're not ready to buy. I want our sales to be good, but I, I have no interest in, you know, coercing somebody to buy something they aren't actually sure if they want. But it is helpful to ask that question just very subtly. And I don't even do it to be manipulative. I don't even do it to try to like trick them into buying it. I'd just rather they make a decision. And if they make that decision, well, they decided no. That's great. Maybe they'll come back. But if they say yes, well, then you sold it. And so you, you kind of force them to make that decision. Because when left to their own devices, people will just spin out. They'll just spin their wheels and they'll spin out. But yeah, there's a, there's a lot of people who like they see a salesperson and they think like liar. And there are a lot of lying salespeople. I don't lie to people. I would say the the one lie that I sometimes tell people is like sometimes we'll have like a piece of furniture that's like obviously cheap and we're, you know, we sell it's a discount furniture store. But sometimes like someone will be asking about like something it's obviously fairly cheaply made. And I'm just like, oh, you know, it's sturdy. Yeah, it's, it's you know, it's sturdy. It's like, you know, it's not like we're selling total crap. But it's like, you know, if you know anything about furniture, like you'd know this isn't high end, basically. And uh, so that's, that's about it, though. It's like basically like there's a couple brands in particular. There's one that we carry that like is a huge furniture brand. Like this furniture company has its own store. I'll just say it. There's no reason not to say it. But Ashley Furniture. They have like the Ashley Home Store right by my house. Like just about every furniture store carries Ashley but it's it's known for being cheaply made and like sometimes people will be like oh you know this isn't cheaply made is it and I'm just like you know it's sturdy i don't i try not to lie about it cuz I, I i don't really know you know i don't really know how some of this stuff holds up but it's my job to sell it and thus far like we don't get complaints like people know what they're getting and I've never gotten any complaints like nobody's called the store and they've been like that piece of crap I bought from you fell apart the second I took it home nobody's called and said that but uh, yeah you know some stuff is cheaply made turns out a lot of stuff in general is a lot of stuff in general is cheaply made But anyway, uh, you know, so that's that's about the extent of it for me, though. I always try to be honest. Like, I, you know, it doesn't help anybody to be dishonest if you're selling them something. I'm not going to feel good about it. Oh, you, I'm tired. It's late.
Got to go to work in the morning. Um, talking about all sorts of stuff. Honesty. I don't even know what I started with. And so I'll end by not even knowing what I'm talking about now. I don't even know what I'm talking about. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free.